Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Revelation. And if you're joining us, we've been in a series where we've been studying through the book of Revelation. And we're in chapter 3 this morning. As you turn there, I have a small confession to make. And that is that until the beginning of January this year, I had never studied the book of Revelation. I'd never read a commentary on it. I had never heard it preached through expositionally. Um, I never wanted to watch one of the episodes of Left Behind. (laughs) I'm ashamed to admit it, I still don't think I've even read through the entire book, which I realize is not the ideal thing you want to hear from the guy who's about to preach a sermon to you from it. (laughs) Um, but, But something Pastor Billy said at the start of the series about the way that God intends to use the book of Revelation in our lives, it's given me a fresh desire to know this book. This is what he said. He said, the book of Revelation is meant to pastor us more than prophesy to us. You guys remember that? I don't think I'll ever forget that description of this book. And hasn't that been our experience already? We're just two chapters in. We're starting a third chapter this week. And and even if we just think about the last four weeks, the, the letters that we've been reading about, just thinking about how Jesus, the great shepherd, has pastored our church throughout this letter. I mean, think about uh, what we've learned. The, the church in Ephesus, like, like that church, Jesus has exhorted our church to be vigilant, to defend sound doctrine without losing loving devotion for him. Like the church in Smyrna, he's encouraged our church to trust Christ's faithfulness as we faithfully live for him through persecution. Like the church in Pergamum, he's called our church to not compromise the message of the gospel, either through what we say with our lips or by the way we live out our lives. And, like we heard last week, like the church in Thyatira, he's reminded our church to love others at all times, even if that means not tolerating all things. We've been given much to apply, and we still have a lot to learn from this book, but these letters, they've though they've contained some challenging warnings, they've been a gracious gift to us. And as we study our next letter this morning, the letter to the church in Sardis, it's my prayer that this letter, though perhaps difficult to swallow at first, um, will be another gracious gift to us, just as it was to the people of Sardis the day that they first heard this letter read to them. Imagine what that day would have, might have been like. We don't know. Just imagine with me for a second, you know, the people of the church of Sardis, they had heard about this certain letter that was sent by the aging Pastor John, that faithful apostle who had been exiled on the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. And they had heard that this letter contained a vision that John had received from the resurrected Jesus himself, who was sending a prophetic message to the seven churches in Asia. And they had even heard there was a section of the letter that was addressed specifically and personally to their church in Sardis. I mean, they had to have wondered, what's it going to say? Would it be encouraging, like the letter Paul had written to the church in Thessalonica? Or or perhaps we're in need of some kind of instruction or correction. Certainly Paul had written letters like that to churches before. Or, Or maybe Jesus was returning, just like he promised he would. There was this mixture, potentially, of excitement and curiosity and anticipation And they had heard that this letter had been making its way around to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and it was now here in Sardis, and it was going to be read at their next gathering. 
Perhaps when that day came, they gathered together as a church, as they usually would, to sing and fellowship like we did this morning, and to hear the scriptures read aloud to them. And one of their elders would stand up, and and he opens this inspired letter, and he begins to read it aloud to them. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is chapter 1. Which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he'd go on reading, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And in verse 9, I, John, was on the island called Patmos in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in in a book and send it to the seven churches. You could just imagine the people hanging on every word as it was proclaimed. Then... They would have heard the passage containing the vision of Jesus, and that's the passage that we've been spending time each week reading before we consider the letter to that specific church that we're going to study each morning. So that starts in verse 12 of chapter 1. They would have heard, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The suspense was probably killing them. They could hear a pen drop. They could hardly wait to hear what it was that Jesus was going to say. Then the letter to the first church was read. It was to the church in Ephesus. And then the second letter to the church in Smyrna. And then the third to Pergamum. And the fourth, Thyatira. And finally, it was their turn. We get to our passage this morning, Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we... We ask you to give us ears to hear your word this morning. Even though this letter was originally written to the church in Sardis, Lord, we, we know, as it says at the end of this letter, that it, it's actually a letter intended for all churches of all ages to hear. So that means that this letter contains a message for our church here in Midland, Texas. You want to address us. You want to address each of us. So, so, Spirit of God, we ask you would, you, would you soften the soil of our hearts, even now as we're praying? Lord, we trust this word is for each of us this morning, at least in some way. So, so stir us, Lord, stir up our hearts. Stir in us an eagerness to hear from you. Stir in us a willingness to receive this word from you. Stir in us an obedience to respond to this word in faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the end of my first semester of my freshman year of college, I received a letter, uh, much like the Sardinians. I I couldn't figure out how to say that. Um, But I I received a letter. It was from the finance department of the college I was attending. The letter was written to inform me that I was being placed on academic probation because I had failed to maintain the minimum GPA, 3.0 GPA required to keep the full academic scholarship the college had so graciously given me. I had made a 2.88 that semester. Now, maybe for some of you, you would have been jumping for joy at a 2.88. But for me, up until that moment in my short lifespan, I had never made lower than a 4.0. And so I I was shocked. I was mortified. I couldn't believe it. I I was trying to figure out what in the world am I going to do. My parents didn't have money to send me to college. I certainly didn't have any money to send myself to college. I just felt like such a miserable failure. And it, it really was my fault. You see, it sounds so silly now, but I loved playing pool. (laughs) Almost every day, I'd I'd go out to the rec center for hours, and I'd play pool. Zeke Zeke and I got to play some pool together recently. Uh, (laughs) You have to say that. Often, I'd be at the rec center until they closed the center, and they kicked me out. I, I loved to play volleyball. And I'd do that with a bunch of folks out at the college, like up until all hours of the night uh, out in front of our dorm. And then I'd, I'd go back to bed, and I'd be so tired in the morning that I'd, I wouldn't hear my alarm go off. And so I'd miss class. And missing class means that you're not familiar with the material. And not being familiar with the material means that you're not turning in projects, and you're failing tests. And so I got on probation. Um, and you'd think that that kind of pressure, receiving that kind of letter... Uh, you know, the, professor, pr- the pressure to perform, it would have whipped me back into shape. But I went back this, the next semester on probation and actually did worse at managing my time than I had in the first semester. And there's a lot of backstory to that. You know, this doesn't excuse it, but it does explain some of why I had less success that second semester. Uh, but that's a story for another time. So just suffice it to say, at the end of that second semester of my freshman year, I had failed two classes for exceeding the number of absences allowed. I had gotten a 1.9 on my GPA, which I didn't even know was possible to do, and 
I received a, letter, a second letter from the finance department, but this time to tell me that my full scholarship had been indefinitely revoked. Uh, so I had quite literally flunked my freshman year of college because I couldn't wake up. And in our text this morning, the church at Sardis faces a similar but much more severe problem. They too had trouble waking up. They didn't seem to realize it, but they were a church on its deathbed. And they were receiving their own probation letter. But it wasn't a probation letter from the finance department at their local college. No, no, Jesus himself was delivering them a severe but merciful message. And this is the gist of what that message would be to them. And that's our main point for this morning. The Spirit's life is the only hope for a dead church. It's my hope that we'll see that in our text this morning. We're going to look at several warnings and commands Jesus gives to his church in Sardis in an effort to protect it from losing what little life it had left. And just a note, I had at the top there Ephesians. That's not the passage we're studying this morning. We're in Revelation 3. I was supposed to say at the beginning. Uh, So anyway, the first thing Jesus has to tell this church, first point, a dead church won't find life in its reputation. Jesus begins this letter by confronting this church with some shocking news. I have to imagine they were just shocked to hear this. Uh, look at the second half of verse 1. It says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is the first of the letters to the churches that we've come to so far that doesn't begin with some sort of commendation. Think back on what Jesus had said to the previous churches we've looked at. Ephesus You know, you've been patiently enduring. Smyrna, you're rich even though you seem poor. Pergamum, you are being a faithful witness for Christ. Thyatira, your love and faith and service, they're getting better and better. They're better now than they've ever been. Sardis, you're dead. I wonder what the other churches must have thought when they heard that. Because remember, they're they're hearing this letter as well. I wonder what they would have thought. They knew Sardis. They'd be like, did he just say Sardis? No, it can't be. How could that even be possible? There's no way. I mean, Sardis is like the real deal. We know Sardis. They're full of life. Such great people there. I mean, isn't the church growing? I think I heard they just renovated their building. They, they, just have a, they must have a pretty healthy budget to do that. I know they're active in the community. I hear them starting all kinds of new ministry programs. Yeah, there's no way Jesus means Sardis. Everyone knows they're, they're a great church. But Jesus has a different opinion. He shows up on the scene and pronounces them dead on arrival. I know your works, he says in verse 1. Your name doesn't impress me. I know who you really are. I know what's really going on. And in that moment, whatever favorable public reputation this church believed itself to have suddenly vaporized. Didn't matter at all. Because the creator and sustainer of the universe had just read their mail. And pronounced upon them a staggering verdict. You are dead. How could this be possible? How could a church be known by its community and surrounding churches as active and vibrant, but in actuality be dormant and dull inside? Well, look later on in verse 2. Jesus says this, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So apparently, even though there were works being done in Sardis, they weren't being done the way God intended. 
We learn in passages like Ephesians 2.10, we were created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But the works apparently being done by the church in Sardis were not measuring up. God did not approve. These were dead works, half-hearted, incomplete, unfulfilled. It was like they were going through the motions but lacking spiritual faithfulness and fervor. They had maybe, as 2 Timothy 3.5 says, the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Perhaps their works were being done out of selfishness rather than sacrifice or tradition rather than treasuring Christ, or self-preservation rather than being willing to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. Or, or maybe they were trying to gather more people rather than grow in godliness. Or perhaps, as verse 1 suggests, they were more interested in making a name for themselves than they were in giving glory to God. We can only speculate what was going on. Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us descriptions here like he does in all the other letters. But, however, we can safely assume, at least from verse 2, that whatever works they were doing, they were not complete in the sight of God. They may have appeared impressive on the outside, but on the inside, they were empty. And remember what the Lord said to Samuel in Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord's eyes, like we heard about last week, like a flame of fire, and they burned right through that church's paper-thin reputation, revealing its true identity. They had no spiritual pulse. What about SGC, Sovereign Grace Church? What about us? How would Jesus diagnose our church body this morning? If he, with his flaming eyes of fire, peered past our name and our building and our ministries and our healthy budget and whatever reputation we might have in the community, what would he find? Would he find life? Would he find spiritual life? Would he find faithfulness? A people wholly devoted to him? Would he find a church dependent upon the Holy Spirit to put sin to death? to cultivate godliness, to save the lost, to seek the sick and hurting and see them healed? Would he find a church known more for our sacrifice than our, our savings? Would he find a church known more for our witness than our welfare? Would he find a church known more for the health of our church body rather than the worth of our church building? And... and just so you're not mistaken, these are not accusations against us. I think God has been very gracious to us as a church. My wife and I, we, we say it all the time, just how, how grateful we are to be a part of this church. We've been led by leaders who want these things to be true about their own lives and who want them to be true about you and who don't care about a reputation other than one that points to God and his glory but the lesson to take away from this letter is that the church in Sardis thought it was doing good too. They had a lot going on. They were making an impact. People knew about them, but they had no spiritual life. They trusted in their reputation for life, and it left them dead. A dead church won't find life in its reputation. 
The Spirit's life is the only hope for a dead church. And that takes us to our second point. A dead church can't wake itself up. (laughs) After Jesus exposes the works of the people of Sardis and pronounces them dead, he goes on to give them a pretty surprising command. He says in verse 2, look there, right at the beginning, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Well, well, wait a second, wait a second, Jesus. Didn't you just make a big deal about how dead these people were? And now you're saying that they're just asleep? I'm kind of confused, and, and I'm no coroner, but if they're dead, what good is it going to do to tell them to wake up? Like, that, that's not really how that thing works. I mean, I think that's a reasonable question for a human being to ask. But, but Jesus is no human being. Jesus is the living God who has defeated the power of death. Bringing a dead man back to life for him is as simple as asking a man to wake up. Remember the story in Mark 5 of the father who comes to Jesus and asks if Jesus would come lay his hands on his daughter who was on the brink of death. But before Jesus is able to get to their house, word is sent back that the man's daughter has already died. But Jesus, being the gracious and awesome person that he was on this planet and God, he tells them to hang on a second and just trust him. And so they all end up going to the house anyway. And then in verse 38 of chapter 5, sorry, I had my Bible in the wrong spot. Verse 38, he says, you have heard, that is not the right one. It's not Mark 5. What, what is the chapter? Oh, I got the wrong notes. It's verse 38 of whatever chapter in Mark it is. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. (laughs) But he put them all outside. I love that. He put them all outside. He's like, get out of here. Stop laughing at me. And took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand and said to her, Talita kumi. I looked that up. Talita kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking. There were those in Sardis who were spiritually dead. There were those laying lifeless in a spiritual coma. There were those paralyzed by spiritual lethargy. But whether spiritually dead or spiritually asleep, it matters not to Jesus. He has defeated the power of death, and he alone can wake them up. So as he said to the little girl, he says to them, Sardis, arise, wake up. Strengthen what remains. What does Jesus mean by that command to strengthen what remains? Well, in addition to the dead and sleeping in Sardis, in verse 4 of chapter 3, we're introduced to another smaller, much smaller group of people. Jesus says there in verse 4 that there were still a few names in Sardis, people who had not soiled their garments. Apparently, not everyone in Sardis was dead, the church in Sardis. There was a bit of life still left in some. So perhaps what this command to, strength, so perhaps what this command to strengthen what remains means, Jesus is calling out to these few unstained ones to use the strength of the Holy Spirit that remained in them to minister to those dying all around them. Picture a scene in a movie when a soldier is on the battlefield and has been fatally wounded. While he takes his last few breaths before he dies, a fellow soldier comes rushing to his aid, holds him in his arms. And and what does that fellow soldier do? 
as he's holding them there? Doesn't he attempt to impart strength and courage to his dying friend? Stay awake. Don't give up. I'm right here. Stay with me. Keep fighting. I'm going to get you help. Don't you die on me. He does whatever he can do to plead with his dying friend to stay alive, attempting to strengthen what little hope is left. And I just wonder if Jesus, if this is what he has in mind, if, if he's, he might be commanding even some of you this morning to, to look around, look around you, see who around you might need to be strengthened. Which of your fellow soldiers in this body are you aware of that are on the brink of spiritual death? Or who has been lulled to spiritual sleep by the world's lullabies? Or who's been stained by the soiling sin around us? Look around. Think think about it. Look around. Who, Who is there, you faithful ones here in this church? Who is there? Might they need you to draw near to them with your heart full of faith, to be used by the Holy Spirit to stir up strength and hope in them, to say to them, stay awake. Don't give up. I'm right here. Stay with me. Keep fighting. I'm going to get you help. Don't you die on me. Because unlike the soldier on the battlefield who can only muster a few desperate, trembling words to try to comfort and strengthen his dying friend, you have Jesus to give to them. You have Jesus who holds the words of eternal life. And by the power of his spirit within you, you can pray for them and encourage them and walk beside your fellow brother or sister, and together with them trust in the life and words and hope of Jesus. A dead church can't wake itself up. The Spirit's life is the only hope for a dead church. That takes us to our third point. A dead church needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 3 beginning of verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. What do you think Jesus is urging them to remember? What had they heard and received in the past, but now in the present had forgotten? Well, certainly implied here, I think, would be that they need to remember the gospel of Jesus that they heard. Milton Vincent, in his book, A Gospel Primer for Christians, says this. I think this is in your notes. The gospel is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous, according to my conscience, and so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of it as I should. That's true. Every day that we are being tempted to disbelieve the gospel. And he goes on, there is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemning of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. That's what we're called to do without, without the practical implications of the gospel being rehearsed in our hearts, closely tethered to our hearts and minds every day. Our tendency, each of us, our tendency is going to be to drift away from its truth by the current of the culture we live in into all sorts of distortions and lies and false saviors to worship. So the people in Sardis, they they needed to remember the gospel of Jesus that they heard so that they wouldn't stray from the hope it was able to bring to them. 
But I think there's another meaning, perhaps, that Jesus has here when he urges them to remember what they've received. John Stott's thoughts here are helpful. There's another quote. Was it simply the word of God, the gospel? Think not. Sound doctrine on its own cannot reclaim a a church from death. Orthodoxy itself can sometimes be dead. They had received more than the gospel. Not less, but more than the gospel. They had received the Holy Spirit. He is the distinctive gift that we all receive when we respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, cried Peter on the day of Pentecost. And added, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew this too. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Okay, sounds like a convincing argument. Do we see that in the text before we take John's word for it? Let's look look at the beginning of verse 1. Jesus has begun each of these letters to the churches with a personal description suited to the condition of the particular church he's addressing. And we've seen that, each letter. In every case, the description Jesus gives of himself points the churches to his sufficiency for their need. The letter to Sardis is no exception. Remember, Sardis is a needy, lifeless, dying church. That's their condition. So it doesn't make sense, so doesn't it make sense that Jesus would begin this letter underscoring himself as the remedy to their issue? Look at verse 1. It says, The words of him, so that's Jesus, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, how's that supposed to help us? <laughs> well, do you remember what we learned back in Revelation chapter 1 when we started this book? In verse 4. You can go ahead and turn there. In verse 4, we saw this grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. And from his seven spirits who are before his throne. That's the Holy Spirit we learned. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So we got the Trinity right there at the beginning of this letter. Father, Spirit, Son. The seven spirits, seven being a number of completeness, seven meaning the the complete Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus in chapter 3 says, him who has the seven spirits of God. He's got the Holy Spirit. Then he says the seven stars. What's that about? Look look uh, back in chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And then look down in verse 20, at the end of verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Okay, now we're starting to see a little bit what's going on here. What are these descriptions telling us about Jesus? He's got seven churches in one hand and the fullness of the Spirit in the other. This is what he wants the church in Sardis and our church here in Midland to remember And receive. Jesus holds us in his hands and Jesus will fill us with his spirit. James Hamilton says, If Christ alone can see and expose the plight of Sardis, certainly he alone can deal with it. And this he is ready to do. Christ has in his hands both the needy church and the life giving spirit. He can bring the two together, not only to diagnose, but also to revive the dead. You want to know what it means to be a charismatic church? 
It means trusting the Holy Spirit to fill us with the life and power necessary to live for Jesus. That's what this book of Revelation is all about. It's to open our eyes to his glory, to lift our drooping heads, to follow him wherever he leads, to read his word like seeking treasure, to sing with joy and passion, to pray without ceasing, to love his people with patience, to say no to temptation, to deepen our love for what he loves, to obey what he commands and to please him in all things. The power to do this stuff, it can't come from our own strength. It only comes through the power of God's spirit. So this is why Jesus says a dead church needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit because the spirit of God is the only hope for a dead church. So Jesus says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it. Then he says, this is our fifth point, a dead church must repent. Actually, I think it's our fourth point, isn't it? A dead church must repent. There were some in Sardis who were not just asleep. So we saw that there were some who were not dead. There was a few of those. So I think it's also safe to assume that there were some that weren't just asleep. They were dead, like really dead. Like Ephesians 2, dead. Dead in the transgressions and sins in which they walked. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Sure, they may have been walking around. They may have been coming on Sundays. They might have participated in discipleship groups. But they were dead. They had not been born again. Even here at SGC, there are those of you listening to this sermon right now, and if Jesus were to look you in the eyes, he would say, you are dead. I don't, I don't say that lightly. But you, you've been around church. You've walked through the motions. Maybe everyone that knows you thinks you're alive, but you know, and Jesus knows, that you are dead. And this is why this letter is such a gracious gift to us this morning. And to you this morning, hear hear Jesus calling out to you, repent, turn away from your sin, stop trusting in your good works to save you, stop hoping that your reputation will make you valuable, stop looking for life in places and in people and in possessions, repent, wake up, turn to him, receive the good news of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He gave up his mortal life so you could have eternal life. Come to him. doesn't matter what you've done. He offers forgiveness to you this morning. All you need to do is respond to him in repentance. And if you hear him calling you this morning and you feel within your soul a desire to respond to him, that's exactly the life we've been talking about all morning. That's him awakening you to life, filling you with his spirit. Oh, if that is you, respond to him. Repent of your sins. Receive his spirit. Don't wait another second. Because there's a warning in this letter. It doesn't go well for those who are unwilling to repent. Look at verse 3 again. Right there in the middle. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I 
this is, some believe that this is a reference to the second coming. But the second coming is still going to happen whether you wake up or not. So I don't think that's what he's talking about there. I think this is a reference to a future judgment for a present stubbornness. And that, that should sober every one of us. This would have sobered Sardis to hear this. Sardis, in its history, was known all over the place. It had a reputation for, for being this impenetrable fortress of a city. It had these cliffs that were surrounding it on all sides, and it was thought to be undefeatable. Uh, and so Sardis knew that, and they wouldn't put... Uh, guards around all of their walls because they knew people aren't going to get in here. We're, we're good. But as the story goes, twice in its history, it was conquered uh, in the same way or similar way where um, soldiers came and climbed up the cliffs thought to be in, impassable and climbed the walls and got into the belly of the city and overtook the city. So Sardis would have heard this uh, This passage, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I will come against you. They would have heard that, and they would have thought about that, that story in their city. That would have meant something to them. I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to find out what Jesus means when he says, I will come against you. Those are, those are not words I want, to, I want to know anything about. This is a sober warning for us, and it should cause us to, each of us, to regularly pray what King David prayed in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Make that our prayer this week. A dead church won't find life in its reputation. A dead church can't wake itself up. A dead church needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and a dead church must repent, because the Spirit of God's the only hope for a dead church. But there's at least one last thing Jesus intends to give to the church in Sardis before he closes his letter to them, and that is a dead church has a lasting promise. Look in verse 4. Let's read this together. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." Jesus is always more gracious than we expect or deserve, isn't he? He concludes this letter with not just one promise, but three promises. <laughs> and the first of those promises is a promise for purity. Look at verse 5 again at the beginning. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Elsewhere, Jesus says in, in Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death and in revelation 7 verse 13 then one of the elders addressed me saying who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come i said to him sir you know you know <laughs> 
And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And in 1 John 3, 2, 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Into verse 4 in chapter 3 says, They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. It's a good promise for purity. The second promise is a promise that will be with Jesus for all eternity. Look at the middle of verse 5. Talking about the one who conquers. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Some have taken this to indicate that it's possible for a believer for the believer's name to be written into this book and then blotted out based on some sort of moral failure or sin or walking away from the faith. But this passage and other passages like it throughout the Bible, that's not what it's saying. What it's doing is it's promising that all who make it to the end will not be erased from this book. That's what it says. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So it's just a promise that that's not going to happen. There will be no names of unbelievers written in this book. Only the names of believers are in this book, and no name, based on this promise in chapter 5, can or will ever be erased from it. That's a good promise for us to believe. We will be with Jesus for all eternity. And then the third promise, the third and last promise, it's a promise for a new identity. It's a purity, eternity, identity. Again, verse, in verse 5, at the end of it, talking about the one who conquers. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. We've we've heard Sardis had trusted in their reputation. They had placed their hope in what they believed to be a good name. But like Jesus had said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So isn't it a sweet promise that Jesus makes here at the end of this letter? Essentially, he's saying, I'm going to vouch for you. You don't have to hope that your reputation is good enough. I'm going to attach my name to yours. And you're going to have my name. You will have my righteousness. You'll be clothed in my robes. Your name will be written in my book, and it's never going to be removed. The people in Sardis didn't deserve that kind of uh, promise. We don't deserve that kind of promise. But because of Jesus, that promise, church, is ours. Jesus calls us to wake up. He calls us to strengthen what remains. He calls us to remember what we've received and to keep it and to repent of our sins. And then he promises that at the end, when we conquer the evil one, we can wash our garments in the blood of the Lamb. And, we, and he, not we, he will confess our name before his father and before the angels. So church, he, verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear. May we hear this morning this word. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, our trust is not in a man's delivery of your word. Lord, our trust is in your word. Lord, so 
in whatever ways I may have gotten in the way of your word, Lord, would you overcome that? Lord, would you let your word be effective in our hearts today? In all the unbelievers who heard this word, in all the sleepy believers, in all the almost dead believers, in all the unbelievers, Lord, whoever heard this word this morning, Lord, would it be effective in their hearts? Lord, would you help us to apply? Lord, would you sober us with this word? Lord, and then, then Lord, would we, would we walk away from this service, not with our tails drooping between our legs, Lord, but remembering that we, we, even though this word could be addressing us, we have a promise, Lord. We have a Savior who offers his life to us this morning. That is good, and that is true, and we can walk away with that this morning with the hope for a new purity, a final purity, a final eternity, a lasting eternity, and then a new identity. Lord, so, so strengthen your church this morning. Wake us up, Lord. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, for your glory. Amen.